Uh, such a good time uh, with the guys at Man Camp last year, and I, I know how it works that um, behind every great man there's an even greater woman, and so I was eager to uh, get to know uh, the rest of you and um, uh, knowing Ken and, and you know, sort of uh, peeking and, and spying on him and uh, listening to some of his sermons and hearing him shepherd you and seeing your hunger for God's Word manifested. Um, I knew this was going to be a, a really sweet time, really good time to be with you to preach God's Word. And so it's, it's really a delight to be here. Thanks for letting me hang out with you, and I'm really excited to talk about the fear of God. And what I'm going to do tonight is going to be a little unusual. I like to preach texts, singular text, verse by verse. I'm not going to do that tonight. Tonight I'm going to do something lofty and hard and challenging, and yet I believe it's necessary. I need to teach, I need to preach a theology of fearing God. We have to, we have to wrap our minds around this. We have to orient our minds around the fear of God, and so we need to do all of the Bible, what is the fear of God. And I want to begin by saying that, you know, we do not lack emphasis today in the church on being practical, do we? We don't lack that. We love the practical. We love application, and that's good. That's a great thing. We should love the practical. We should love application. Because if by practical someone means authentic life change and transformation, then I'm all on board. If by practical someone means greater holiness and increasing conformity to Jesus Christ, then I am on board. So let that be said, we need hands-on, user-friendly, real-world, how-to, practical teaching for the trenches of life. Let that be said, we need the practical. No one disagrees with that. What people do disagree on is what qualifies as practical. What is disagreed upon is what qualifies as practical. because. I have a burden for the church. I am burdened, I fear for the church that many have grown a little too pragmatic in their expectations. That we've turned into a bunch of how-to junkies that need our teaching pre-chewed and bite-sized and dipped in candy and wrapped in plastic. I guess what I'm saying is I believe that it's now time to reset our criteria of what, what we define as practical. Because my question is, get this now, listen carefully, my question is, what if practical was to have your soul clobbered by the towering majesty of God? What if that was practical? What if the essence of practical was a devastating glimpse of the God who spoke galaxies into existence? What if the most practical thing in our lives and the most healthy medication for the soul was, in fact, a, to encounter the matchless supremacy of God from the pages of Scripture? What if that was the case, that that was actually the most practical thing for our lives? Because that's exactly what I'm arguing. Because you see, to see the lofty and matchless and unrivaled supremacy of God, the reason why that is so practical is because when we see God in all of who He is, what that produces in the soul is the fear of God. And that's the essence of practical. That's the essence of practical. And I know that sounds crazy. I know that, that that seems irrational. There's no way that that's true, but it absolutely is true. In fact, I would argue that fearing God is the vital missing link in most people's lives that perfectly explains their lack of holiness, their lack of joy, their preoccupation with entertainment and amusements and trivialities. In other words, the weakness of the church in holiness and hope and courage and perseverance is largely owing to the fact that they have relegated fear to a bygone era. Oh, we don't talk about the fear of God nowadays. We, we talk about grace now. 
We leave the fear of God for that puritanical caveman age when the church only knew about sin and only talked about God's wrath and had not yet discovered his grace. And yet tonight, I need you to know that we need to deprogram our aversion to the fear of God. We need to embrace the fear of God, not only as beautiful, not only as glorious, but essential to our holiness, essential to our worship, and even essential to our very joy. You heard me right, our joy. So tonight, all this weekend, you know the fear of God is the subject of our contemplation. What it is, what it means, how it's produced in our lives, why it matters, why it's the essence of practical. We're going to get to all that, but just know, just know that if fearing God seems or sounds repulsive to you, if that sounds undesirable to you, then I just need you to know that the problem is not that the Bible calls you to fear God. The problem probably lies in your definition of what it means to fear God. Because should you define the fear of God in a certain way, meaning the wrong way, you will find God distant and cold and cruel and unapproachable and to our great relief, that's not in the Bible. But should you define it the right way, meaning the way the Bible defines the fear of God, then you will find God to be a treasure of such matchless beauty and staggering sovereign power that who he is shapes who you are in what you do in the most private, secret, unguarded moments of your life when no one can see you except God. And it doesn't get much more practical than that. I'm serious. The thing that makes the fear of God so powerful in our lives is that it goes beneath the surface to the very root of our deepest struggles. Even, even if you don't hear me say one word about your particular struggles directly, the fear of God nevertheless goes to the very bottom of every single issue that you could possibly face. And the reason for that is because it has to do with your very perception of what God is like. And so tonight, batting leadoff, the Fear and Tremble Conference is a biblical theology of the fear of God, meaning our agenda, our only agenda tonight, is simply to define what the fear of God even means. We've got to get a handle on this. And to do that, we have to look from Genesis to Revelation, from first creation to the new creation, from Eden to the new Jerusalem, and we have to... Sorry. Where was I? Creation to new creation, from Eden to the new Jerusalem, and we have to look at what the entire Bible has to say about the fear of God. And here's the deal. When we're done, when we're done tonight, you're not only going to know how to define it, what it means, but it will be one of the sweetest secrets to our holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. And so here we go. Here we go, theology of fearing God, what it means, why it matters, how it's produced, and the radical change that it unleashes in our lives. Here's where we're going tonight. I want you to see five compelling reasons. Five compelling reasons to pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity. Five compelling reasons to pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity. And here's the deal. Uh, before we do that, we have to settle some things. There are some preliminary issues that we have to get to. Before you can even pursue the fear of God with single-minded uh, passion and intensity, we have, we have to wrestle with three particular issues. Three issues, and then we get to the five compelling issues. Preliminary issue number one, the dilemma of fearing God. The dilemma of fearing God. Because that is a dilemma, isn't it? Fearing God? Does that, not, does that not seem incompatible with the rest of the Christian life? Because loving God you get, trusting God you embrace, but fearing God, fearing God, that, that just doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the Christian life. I mean, how do you, how do you fear a God that you're supposed to love? 
Fear is for fires, for monsters, for rapists, for diseases, for, for murderers, for unstable and, and abusive fathers. Those are objects worthy of fear, not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, I mean, that, that makes zero sense in light of who God really is. And furthermore, does not 1 John 4.18 say that perfect love casts out fear? And so this very much seems not only to be something that is pre-Christian, but even something that is anti-Christian. And so I understand, I, am, I understand the, the objections to fearing God. I also, I also understand the knee-jerk desire to redefine the word and choose alternative terms that pack a little less punch like respect and regard and revere, and yet choose whatever terms you desire to soften the blow. It doesn't work. The problem doesn't go away. I mean, the Bible does not merely call you to respect God, but to fear Him. To even tremble before Him and to quake before His sovereign, dreadful majesty. What do you do with that? You can't sneak around the Bible's vocabulary and write the script another way. Because did you know that there are over 20 words in Hebrew, 20 different words in Hebrew for fear? Over 20 different words. All of them in a positive sense, commending the fear of God as an appropriate expression of worship of Yahweh. Fear. Tremble. Shudder. Dread terror, to writhe and tremble in fear, to be frightened, to be in terror, to be afraid, to be horrified, to shake and quake and be weakened with fear. This is literally everywhere in the Old Testament with hundreds and hundreds of references in the Old Testament commending and commanding us to fear God, not merely respect God, to fear Him. And it simply will not do just to appeal, wave the hand and appeal to the New Testament if something is different because nothing is different. Everything is exactly the same. Rather than veer away from the fear of God, Christ and the apostles only uphold the fear of God as the right response to a God who is matchless and supreme because you remember the words of the Lord Jesus. I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear him who after he kills the body is able to cast into hell forever. Yes, I say fear him. What do you do with that? 1 Peter 1, 17. He says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, live your lives in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Do you hear what Peter just did? He just defined the entirety of the Christian life as one of fearing God. What's my point? My point is linguistically, statistically, and theologically, we have no choice left but to embrace the fear of God as the essence of what it means to be a believer. In other words, if you're going to define what faith in God, faith in Christ really is according to the Bible, it just has to include at the center of its meaning the concepts of fear and trembling and even a sense of holy dread before the majesty of God. And yet that's precisely the dilemma, isn't it? That, that, that's exactly the dilemma, that is the problem. The very fact that the Bible commands and commends the fear of God is exactly what just feels so out of place in the Christian life, does it not? We cringe. We, we flinch at the fear of God as if this is somehow incompatible with, with loving God and trusting God and prizing God. And yet, and yet, listen very carefully. If fearing God is really so incompatible with faith in God, then why, I ask, does Exodus 14.31 equate faith and fear as synonymous? <laughs> you don't have to turn there, but Exodus 14.31, after 
the parting of the Red Sea. Listen very carefully. It says, And Israel saw the great power which Yahweh performed against Egypt, and the people feared Yahweh, and they placed their trust in Yahweh. Did you hear it? The connection between faith and fear, fear and faith. First they feared Yahweh, then they placed their trust in Yahweh. Did you hear? It took fearing Him to have faith in Him. What they saw from God that made them fear God was precisely the very thing that made them place their trust in God. It's very interesting. In fact, when you look at the Pentateuch as a whole, the consistent use of fear is as a synonym with faith itself. To fear Him is to have faith in Him. To have faith in Him is to fear Him because these things are one and the same. And then Exodus 20, verse 20. Again, you don't have to turn there, but after giving the Ten Commandments, the people see the mountain where Yahweh's glory was, and they see the grim cloud, they see the fire, they see the smoke, they hear the sounds. There was an earthquake for crying out loud. And Exodus says, the people saw and they trembled and they stood at a distance. And then what did Moses say in reply? He said, do not fear. Don't fear. For God has brought this upon you to test you so that you will fear Him. <laughs> Did you hear that? Which is it, Moses? Is it do not fear or fear? I'm a little confused. And the answer is both. The answer is yes. Fearing God that makes you run from God is wrong. Fearing God that makes you run to God is right. But again, if fearing God is such a negative thing, if it's such a negative thing, then why then does Deuteronomy 5.29 say to fear God that it may go well with you and your children? If fearing God is really so incompatible with loving God, why then, I ask, does Yahweh command fear and love as equally valid expressions of allegiance? Deuteronomy 10, 12, listen carefully. You don't have to turn there, but listen carefully. And now what does Yahweh your God require of you? Here it is. Except to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all of His ways, and to love Him, and to serve Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Did you hear that? Of the four things required of Israel, fearing Him was at the top of the list. Even before loving Him, even before obeying Him, even before serving Him. And yet the point is, don't miss this, fearing God and loving God biblically are equated in even at some level interchangeable. This is a fear that loves. This is a love that, that fears. Again, Lord, this, Nehemiah 1.11 says that the servants of God delight. Literally, the Hebrew says, take pleasure in fearing God. Pleasure in fearing God. Who knew? What do we do with that? If fearing God was really so inconsistent with joy... Why then, I ask, does Psalm 211 command us to serve Yahweh with fear and to rejoice with trembling? Do you hear this? Serve with fear, rejoice with trembling. Serve with fear, rejoice with trembling. Well, that, that's really interesting. How, how, do you, how do you tremble and rejoice in God? It, it must be that fear and joy are really not so very far apart, but in fact are inseparable. And then you get to the book of Proverbs, which has the fear of God at the center of its theology, always in a positive sense. Proverbs 1, 7, fear God. It's the beginning of knowledge. Chapter 8, verse 13, it's the beginning of wisdom. 9, verse 10, it is the beginning of wisdom. 
And then get a load of this, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. It says, fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. Why? For it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. It's therapeutic. It delights the soul. It even brings healing to the body. Proverbs 14, 27 says that the fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life. It's the fountain of life to fear God, meaning it delights and it satisfies the soul. Proverbs 19, 23 says that the man who fears God sleeps satisfied and will not be touched by evil. You want a good night's sleep? Fear God and get a holy life. And fearing God, whatever it means, it, it can't be too out of place in the Christian life because in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Solomon says that fearing God is the very meaning of life itself. What do you do with that? And then you move to the prophets. And if fearing God was really so unworthy of Christianity, why is it that Isaiah chapter 11 says that the Messiah, when he would come, would fear God? That's very interesting. That the Messiah would fear God. Jesus Christ feared God. I mean, I know he is God, but he exemplified as fully man what it looks like, what it means to fear God. The text even says that he delighted in the fear of God. What do you do with that? And then there's Isaiah 33, verse 6, which says that fear, the fear of the Lord is the treasure of the soul. And then Jeremiah 32, this would not hurt to take a look at in your Bibles, Jeremiah 32 Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 40. And you know about the new covenant, don't you? The new covenant is the very salvation you possess if you are in Christ. You are under the new covenant, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet here is the thing about the new covenant is that it was predicted and revealed in the old covenant, wasn't it? The salvation bought for you, purchased for you, revealed and displayed and predicted in the Old Testament. And I want you to listen very carefully, look very carefully at the role of fear in our salvation. Notice this very carefully, the supernatural work that God performs in the soul, starting in verse 38. Yahweh says, and they will be my people. And I will be their God, and I will give to them one heart and one way in order to fear me all of their days, to do good for them and to their sons after them. And I will make a covenant, an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not depart from them doing good for them. Here it is. And I will place the fear of me in their heart so that they will not turn from me. Do, do you see the centrality of fear in the new covenant, the very salvation that you possess if you belong to Jesus Christ? My point is, if fearing God is really so out of place, then why twice does God say he will supernaturally implant it in, into the souls of the people that he saves? And then you get to the Gospels. You get to the Gospels, and what do you do with the fact that Christ multiple times commanded people to fear God? What do you make of the fact that Christ, when he did some mind-blowing miracle, the, the, the Gospels say that the crowd was terrified and glorified God. Terror and glory in the same phrase, in the same verse. What do you do with the fact that when Christ walked on water, the disciples were afraid? They were afraid of him. And then when he got in the boat, they worshipped him. What do you do with that? What do you do with Matthew 28, 8, when it says that the women ran away from the empty tomb and it said that they were filled with fear and great joy? 
My point is the Gospels always, always, always juxtapose fearing God with some other expression that seems incompatible, like joy in God, like glorifying God, like worshiping God. And yet, they're not incompatible. Where am I going with this? What is even the point? The point is I drag you through all of that to show you that the Bible itself refutes every single one of our negative connotations that we normally associate with fearing God. That's my point. I mean, if it's a delight, and if it's a joy, and if it's a treasure, and if it's for your good, and if it's a fountain of life and healing to the body and refreshment to the bones and the meaning of life, and if it's synonymous with trust and love and joy and glorifying God, and it's implanted inside the soul when he saved us, and it is all of those things, then clearly fearing God is not what you think. It's better than you think. Clearly fearing God with all of its holy dread and righteous trembling before the supremacy of God is also filled, get this, with faith and love and pleasure and joy and trembling and exhilaration and satisfaction and delight. Did you know that? Fearing God is not irreconcilable with love or faith, but rather it is an expression of love and faith. Fearing God is an expression of love and faith in God. Fearing God is contained in and is inseparable from faith and love for God. All I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, any aversion that we might have to the fear of God lies only in our own failures to grasp the beautiful, God-exalting layers of what the Bible even means by that. Because at the end of the day, should we get what this really means, and should we live this out in our lives, we have not only accessed the secret to our sanctification, but we have also accessed the secret to our sanctification, satisfaction. And there's nothing more practical than that. That's preliminary issue number one, the dilemma of fearing God. I think we solved the dilemma. This is a good thing. You should want this. You should desire this. Preliminary issue number two. Number two, the discovery of fearing God. The discovery of fearing God. And really, this, what we're about to do here, this is massive for the whole conference. I don't want to say the most important part, but it is really central. This is really crucial what we're about to do here. What I mean is to define what the fear of God even means, which is what we're going to do in preliminary issue number three, we first have to build a theology of the fear of God from the ground up. We have to build a theology of fearing God, meaning we have to look at the Bible as a whole, and we have to look at the reasons given in the text, the reasons the text gives for why it is that we should fear God. Does that make sense? To, to define it, we have to see the reasons given in the Bible for why we should fear God. Because you understand the Bible gives reasons for fearing God. Lots and lots and lots of reasons to fear the God of the universe. And of course, one of the main reasons we think of is because of His wrath. And that's true. And yet that's not the only reason to fear God. Listen very carefully. There is a kind of fear appropriate if you are God's enemy and under His wrath. But there is another kind of fear that is profoundly appropriate if you are His friend and covered by the blood of His Son. Either way, you must fear God. Either way, on this side of the cross or on this side of the cross, being a saved and regenerated believer, let's put it this way, as divinely chosen, blood-bought, spirit-awakened believers adopted by the Father through the Son, there are other reasons given to fear God. The question is, what are the reasons given in the Bible for why we should fear Him? That's the question. 
And although there are more reasons than the ones I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you three reasons. Three reasons the Bible gives, three theological reasons the Bible gives for why we should and must fear the living God. Theological reason number one, you should fear God for His unparalleled power in creation. You should fear God for His unparalleled power in creation. Because you understand the Bible makes a big deal out of this. Creation, I mean, literal. Six days. Speaking the universe into being out of nothing. The Bible never, ever, ever lets us forget that all things exist precisely because of the sovereign power of God and that that is sufficient reason in itself to fear God. You want a biblical worldview? Here it is. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, you know it, it says, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of His lips all their host. Think about that word and breath. Everything exists. Did you hear what the poet just said? The universe, 93 billion light years across, and every star in them, 100,000 million of them just in our galaxy alone, and all of them whispered into existence by the breath of Yahweh. And I know you know that. I know you know that's a fact, but did you know the Bible's application for that? What you should do in light of that? Two verses later, the very same psalm says, Let all of the earth fear Yahweh. See the connection? Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of Him. There it is, fear. Fearing God is the application to creation. Stunned silence is the only response to the fact that God spoke the universe into existence like it was nothing. And the very next verse says, okay, why should you fear Him? Why should you stand in awe of Him? Listen to, listen to why it says, for He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Consider, the closest planet to Earth is a mere 25 million miles away. Pluto, some of you think it's a planet. Some of you think it's a rock. The church is divided. Pluto is 4.67 billion miles away. Now, the next closest star other than the sun is 29 trillion miles away. 29 trillion miles. Speaking of the sun, a teeny, tiny star compared to many others. It's a 6,000 degrees, a cool 6,000 degrees on its surface, 11,000 degrees in its blazing center, and it's Tiny, it is small compared to others, some of which some stars in the universe have a radius, a radius of three billion miles. And there are millions of stars and planets and galaxies in the universe that are so far away that NASA will never, ever see them. And the time it took you, the time and effort it took you to breathe just now, that is what it took the living God to cause everything to exist. And my point is, whatever a sense of astonishment is kindled in your souls right now, and there should be something, that is what the Bible means by fear. Psalm 96 Three through five sings the same note. You should fear God precisely because he spoke the universe into being. Listen to what it says. It says, tell, declare among the nations his glory. 
And among the peoples his wonders, for great is Yahweh, and very greatly praised. He is to be feared among all of the gods. Why? Tell me why, psalmist. Why should God be feared above all the other so-called gods of the nations? What's the reason? What's the theological reason you're going to give us? Listen to what he says. For the gods of the peoples are idols, here it is, but Yahweh made Shamayim, the heavens. That's the reason. That's the reason you should fear God. Above all the other so-called gods of the nations, precisely because he made the heavens. Do you see this here? This, this, this is elsewhere in the Bible as well. What motivates the fear of God, what should motivate the fear of God in the heart of his people is the atomic sovereign power that caused the universe to exist out of nothing. Theological reason number two. Theological reason number two for why we should fear God. Number two, you should fear God for the unrivaled supremacy of his perfections. No, that's a bit long. I'll say it again. You should fear God for the unrivaled supremacy of his perfections. And by his perfections, I mean his attributes. I mean the innumerable perfections that make God who he is. Because, you know, we we tend to classify God in terms of his attributes, don't we? We, we, we sort of refract God out like light through a prism and we speak of God in terms of his perfections, his, his attributes. We think of him that, oh, God is infinite, God is eternal, God is love, God is sovereign. We sort of chop him up and dice him up into his different attributes and that's fine and you can do that and you should enjoy his individual perfections and excellencies. But my point is, listen carefully, the scriptures speak of fearing God as a response to his supremacy and majesty as a whole. In other words, to rightly fear God, listen carefully, we need to unrefract his perfections and consider the blinding brightness of who God is in all of his excellencies combined and all at once. Put it another way, God is worthy of fear precisely because of the entire spectrum of perfections that make him a treasure of infinite value. For instance, for instance, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. Listen for the logic that Moses gives for why Israel should fear Yahweh. Listen carefully. For Yahweh, your God, he is the God of gods. And he is the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the terrible God, the fearsome God, who does not show partiality, nor does he take a bribe. That that word fearsome, sometimes rendered as awesome in your Bibles, guess what? That is literally the Hebrew word for fear. That's the word for fear. Yare, it is the word for fear. He is the fearsome God. He is the terrible God. He he is the God who is fear. He is the God who provokes fear. He is the God who strikes fear in the heart. That's the point. And yet the question is, the question is, well, why is it that God strikes fear in the soul? What is it about him that draws people to fear? And The reason that Moses gives is because, here it is, he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Do you see what Moses did? He defined God in terms of his supremacy, that he is lofty and matchless and exalted and transcendent and supreme, and that is what makes him worthy to be feared. And so it's no mystery that a few verses later, Moses commands, you will fear Yahweh, you will serve him, you will cling to him, and you will swear by his name. 
So you see where this is going, I hope. That fearing God is the appropriate response of the soul to the supreme worth and majesty of God. Here's another one, Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah 10, which has contained this scathing expose on the stupidity of idols compared to the supremacy of God. Listen very carefully in the text for the reason to fear. It gives a reason to fear God. Listen carefully for what that is. Starting in verse 5, this is Jeremiah 10. It says, the gods of the nations, they cannot speak. They cannot be carried. Or they must be carried because they cannot walk. Listen carefully. There is no one like you, Yahweh. Great are you in might. You are great and great is your name in might. Who should not fear you, O king of the nations? For indeed, it is your due. Why? For among all the wise men of the nations and among all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But Yahweh, He is the true God. He is the living God. He is the eternal King. And because of His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations are not able to endure His indignation. That was a lot, but did you hear the reason given for why God should be feared? Who should not fear you, O king of the nations? This is your due. This is right. This is what you deserve. This is the only thing that makes sense. And why does it make sense to fear God? Answer in the text was, because God is the true God. He is the living God. He is the eternal king. Did you see the reasons given in the text for fearing God? His majesty, His holiness, His authority, His eternality. One more text to seal the deal. Revelation 15. Revelation 15, again, you don't have to turn there. What it is are the lyrics. Lyrics of a future song that will be sung by future martyrs pre-celebrating the kingdom before it comes to the earth. And my point is, I want you to listen for the reason to fear. It talks about fearing God. Listen for the reason, or should I say reasons. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Here it is. Who should not fear you, O Lord, and give glory to your name? Why? Because you alone are holy. Because all the nations will come and they will bow down before you because of your righteous deeds, they were revealed. Two observations there that, that are very important for us. Number one, did you notice that fearing God was synonymous and parallel with glorifying God? Fear and glory, they are one and the same. But second, did you hear the four reasons given in the text for why we should fear God? They were his works are great and marvelous. His ways are true and righteous. He alone is holy and his righteous deeds are put on display. Are you beginning to see a theology of the fear of God emerging from the text? Fearing God is the appropriate response of the soul. A very exhilarated response, by the way the supremacy and majesty and transcendence and holiness of the living God. Put it this way, we will never ever fear God and thus never experience the holy joy it produces unless we come to grips with the fact that God is not merely in a different class, but is in a class by himself. He is other. He is transcendent. He is lofty and exalted and matchless and uncategorizable and supreme and incomparable. This is the very fountain of fear. You want to fear God and you should want that. 
you must climb as high into the Himalayan heights of the majesty of God as you possibly can. There's a third reason. A third reason for fearing God, given in the Bible for why we should fear God, and I will spend only a few minutes on this. I still need to define that. That's where we're going, defining the fear of God, but theological reason number three, you should fear God for His undeserved grace in salvation. You should fear God for His undeserved grace in salvation. This sounds strange, and it seems counterintuitive, but it's true. Multiple times in the Bible, God's deliverance and salvation and sovereign grace in Jesus Christ is given as the reason for why we should fear God. It's very interesting. You see, there is a kind of weak need, face to the ground, trembling of the soul that arises when a ruined sinner comes to grips with sovereign grace. This is everywhere in the Bible. In the Pentateuch, the Torah, again and again, salvation from Yahweh and fearing Yahweh are inseparably intertwined. Does that make sense? His salvation and fearing Him are connected. In the Psalms, this is very important, the Psalms, the kingdom is equated with salvation. The fullest expression of our salvation is not merely the forgiveness of sins. The fullest expression of our salvation, what Jesus paid for, is the global kingdom when He reigns on a throne from Zion and makes all things be the way they ought to be. That is the fullest expression of our salvation. Here's the thing. In the Psalms, salvation, the kingdom, the granting of the kingdom is equated with fear. For instance, here's what I mean. Psalm 40, verse 3. Listen to what it says. It says, many will see and they will fear and they will trust in Yahweh. Well, so what? What's that even referring to? You look at the context, it is clear. Kingdom is the context. When God saves His people at the end of history, then the world will fear. Psalm 102, verse 16 The nations will fear the name of Yahweh and all of the kings of the earth, your glory. When is that supposed to happen? When will there be global, universal, worldwide, planetary fear of God? The context? The kingdom. When Yahweh returns, make things right in the world, restores paradise back to the planet, makes all things be the way they ought to be, then there will be fear. The psalm directly links salvation from God with fearing God. And yet, the clearest text in the Bible that links fearing God with salvation from God is 1 Peter 1, verses 17 and 18. 1 Peter 1, 17 and 18, fearing God with salvation from God. Listen very carefully. Peter says, and if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, here it is, live your lives in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why would you do that? And first of all, it's remarkable, isn't it, that Peter defines the entirety of the Christian life as one of fearing God. He doesn't call it loving God. He doesn't call it obeying God. doesn't call it submission to God. doesn't call it trusting God. He calls it fearing God. Apparently, that was an apt enough term to describe the entirety of the Christian life. The question is, why would we do that? Why would we fear? Does he give any reasons? He does give reasons. Very next verse. Live your lives in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why? Here it is. Because you know that you were redeemed. Not with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life handed down from your fathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the last of these times for the sake of you. Did you hear that? 
Did you hear the powerful, compelling, motivating reason for why you should live your life in fear of God? What was the reason given? What did he say? Redemption is the answer. Redemption is the reason for fear. You were redeemed. You were rescued. You were delivered. You were liberated from the clutches of sin's power, freed from the slavery to sin, not with silver and gold, but with the blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Do you see the issue here? The, the, the reason why we should fear is because the cost to save our souls was infinite. There is a kind of fear appropriate if you are God's enemy under His wrath. But there is another kind of fear profoundly appropriate if you are His friend and covered by the blood of His Son. Listen to the way John Bunyan put it. He said, Godly fear, listen carefully, Godly fear flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God to the soul. <laughs> when you have experienced the love and kindness of God, you will fear Him. That's what he just said. Where there is no sense of the hope and kindness and mercy of God by Jesus Christ, there can be none of this fear but rather wrath and despair, which produces a fear like that of the devil's. But godly fear flows from a sense of hope and mercy from God by Jesus Christ. Did you know that? That there's two kinds of fear. There is godly fear, Bunyan says, and there is devil's fear. One, he says, flows from the love and kindness of God to the soul. The other comes from wrath and despair. My point is, fearing God, listen very carefully, fearing God is not inconsistent with being saved by Christ. It is the manifestation of being saved by Christ. Do you hear that? And this, of course, raises the question, do you fear God? Do you fear the God of the universe? Do you, 1 Peter 1.17, live your lives in fear? Because there is a kind of fear that flows from redemption. And there is a kind of fear that flows from condemnation. The question is, what is the kind of fear that you possess? And that brings us, finally, then, to preliminary issue number three. Preliminary issue number three, the definition of fearing God. The definition of fearing God. After all that, 40 or whatever it is, minutes later, now, now, finally, we get to the definition of the fear of God. We needed to do that. It was required to do all that, but clearly you, you, you sense it, don't you? You, you, get, you get a sense that our default distaste for the fear of God, if we had that when we came, here, came in here, was based solely on one-dimensional views of God, wasn't it? It, it was based solely on, on one-dimensional definitions of what it means to fear, because you have to understand, when it comes to fear in the Bible, there are layers and shades and levels and dimensions, categories of fear. It's not just one thing happening. It's multiple things happening at the same time. The fear of God is complex and multifaceted, and yet it is also beautiful. You see, to fear God, here's, I'm moving towards a definition. To fear God is not to fear Him as a monster, nor as an abusive, unstable father, 
It's a category radically different from fear of cancer, serial killers, and rapists lurking in parking lots. Rather, what the Bible has in mind by the fear of God, listen carefully, is a sheer terror of God mixed and fused with a deep, satisfying pleasure in God that makes you keep your distance, but at the same time finds Him to be absolutely irresistible. Do you hear what's going on there? It means that He is such a treasure to you that you dread His displeasure and you would never dare trifle with Him nor treat Him as common. Fearing God is a little bit like standing on the precipice of a massive cliff. On the one hand, you are terrified of falling to your death, but at the exact same time, you are exhilarated by the view below. It's the same fear you experienced as a kid when gazing at an enormous lion in the zoo. You knew you had darn well better keep your distance, but you found it irresistible not to look and to get as close as you possibly could. Do you hear the issue? That's what this is. Here it is. The fear of God, therefore, is the raw, delicious terror that you taste in your soul when you begin to understand the sheer magnitude of the God who never had a beginning. When you grasp the towering heights of the majesty of God, the Himalayan heights of the God who spoke galaxies into existence, to fear God means that you have a profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where you're standing, you are standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. In other words, to fear God is to tremble before Him as the treasure of your soul. That's the definition I'm going with this weekend. Get, get used to it. It's going to come again and again. To fear God is to tremble before Him as the treasure of your soul. And so, beloved, do you fear God? Do you fear God? Do you taste the raw, delicious terror in your soul of the God who never had a beginning? Do you have that profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where you're standing, you're standing on holy ground because God is there? Do you tremble before God as the treasure of your soul? How would you know? <laughs> How would you know if you did fear God? Well, you would ask yourself these four questions. These four questions help you determine if you, in fact, fear God. Question number one, are there some sins you would never do at church, but you would do somewhere else? Question two, who are you and what do you do when no one's around and no one can see you except God? Question three. If you knew you could indulge in the filthiest sin possible, the most scandalous thing possible, and no one would ever know about it, no one would ever find out about it except God, Would you do it? Question four. 
is the only thing that keeps you back from certain sins, the fear of not getting caught and not because of who God is. Because those two things are a world of difference. And how you answer those four questions determines if God is your God or if fear is your God. And I know I'm pushing it. And I know there probably isn't much left in the tank. But I got to give you what I promised, which are five compelling reasons. Five compelling reasons to pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity. These are going to go fast. These are all from the Bible. Five compelling reasons to pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity. Number one, number one, you should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity because it is the beginning of wisdom. You you should pursue the fear of God because it is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom, you know, is the spiritual skill of applying Scripture to your life. And so the more you grow in the fear of God, the more you will become wise. And the more wise you become, the more holy you become. Which leads us to number two. Number two, you should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity because it is the very power for holiness. You should fear God because it is the very power for holiness. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of Yahweh is to hate evil. You hear that? You fear God, you will hate evil. Proverbs 16.6, By the fear of Yahweh, one turns away from evil. In other words, the secret, the secret to those nagging, hard-to-reach sins that just never seem to go away is to tremble before God as the treasure of your soul. Number three. Number three, you should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity because it is the secret to satisfaction. It is the secret to satisfaction. Proverbs 14, 27, Yerat Yahweh Makor Chayim. The fear of Yahweh is the fountain of life. It's the fountain of life. What is that but a euphemism for joy. That's a picture of satisfaction. And thus, true satisfaction in the soul is only discovered when you are staggered by the supremacy of God. Number four. Number four, you should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity because, get this, it is the foundational step in our physical health. You should pursue the fear of God because it is the foundational step in our physical health. I believe that's exactly what Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8 means when it says, Fear Yahweh, turn away from evil. Why? It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. You can... Try to take that another way, and well, I think it's spiritual refreshment. Or you can see that our bodies and our souls are inseparably intertwined, each one mutually affecting the other, and therefore Solomon says the place to begin in both our physical and spiritual health is to fear and tremble before God. Finally, number five, and then we're done. You should pursue the fear of God with single-minded passion and intensity because it is great likeness to Jesus Christ. You should fear God because when you do, it makes you most look like Christ. You tremble before God as the treasure of your soul. Mark my words, you will resemble and reflect and portray and display the surpassing worth and beauty of Jesus Christ to your wives and to your husbands and to your children and to your co-workers and to your bosses and to the fellow students on your campus and to your fellow comrades in the local church. 
Because it is clear, it is clear, trust me when I say, that, they, that looking and resembling and displaying Christ, well, frankly, there is nothing in the world more practical than that. That's it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we want to get this. We want to understand this more than we do. And so help us, Lord, help us. We understand this is not to be scared of you as a bloodthirsty monster, but it is to be staggered by you as a beautiful and glorious treasure. Help us. Help us to change the way we live. Help us to change, oh Lord, our our patterns and habits when it comes to meditating on your word. Oh, may we be a people who dig deep. May we be a people who explore new heights and vistas and glimpses of your supremacy from the pages of Holy Scripture because when we see that, oh Lord, then we will fear you and when we fear you, we will put your beauty on display. Help us, oh Lord. We have many more hours to go. Help us, sustain us, and transform us through the proclamation of your word. And we give you the glory in advance for what you are about to do in your son's mighty name. Amen.